Welcome to Clickhole Wednesday, a casual hump day hangout that takes less time to edit than my other shit. Hello, ladies and lunchables. Welcome back to another topsy-turvy clickhole, where we'll click from one article to another on Wikipedia and learn likely nothing helpful, but possibly something interesting. I'm your host, a faceless British woman on the internet, and today we are starting with a random article, but as always, feel free to drop a suggestion in the comments to start with next time, should you think it tickles our collective fancy. May the force be with us. Dr. Shameless. Dr. Shameless is a... oh... oh, it's a hentai anime based on an eroge? Japanese genre of erotic video game. Founded by a husband and wife team who released the first... oh, okay, we might have to go there. Consisting of two episodes about Dr. Shinji. The original Japanese release consisted of two DVDs, the first of which was released in 2003 and the second a few months later. It would go on to have a Spanish release and a German release. The plot. A hospital is on the brink of bankruptcy. Dr. Shinji is hired to bring in more patients for the hospital. Quick, get some people ill. Dr. Shinji's treatments involve shameless and humiliating methods to cure his patients. One woman is even made to urinate and defecate in front of the doctor. Wow. Well, we're, we're, we're starting off hot and heavy on this click hole. Um, okay, I guess, I guess this is, this is where we're starting. The beginning of... Eroge sounded interesting. An eroge is a portmanteau of erotic game. In 1982, Japan's Koei, founded by husband and wife team Yoichi and Kiko Erikawa, and later known for strategy video games in a rather quick pivot, released the first erotic computer game with sexually explicit graphics called Nightlife, an early graphic adventure game for the NEC PC 8801. That same year, they released another erotic title, Seduction of the Condominium Wife, which was an early role-playing adventure game with color graphics. And so thus it became a major software company. Enix and Square also released erotic adult games for the PC 8801. That's interesting. History. So these erotic games have their origins in the early 1980s, when Japanese companies introduced their own brands of microcomputer micro to compete with those in the US. The earliest known commercial erotic computer game is PSK's Lolita Yakuken, which was released in 1982. That same year, there was, of course, Seduction of the Condominium Wife, with the color graphics, baby. This is a repeat of the text we read up there. This is a badly written Wikipedia page. Somebody was not focused when they wrote this. There seem to be mostly visual novels, which I guess makes sense. There wasn't the technology to really do anything else in these games. Oh, we can't show that. That is... nope. Nope, gonna have to blur that out, that's for sure. Let's learn more about the history of Koei. So, they were founded in 1978. The company is known for its Dynasty Warriors games. Why have I heard of that? Is there an image? No. Probably sounds like 10 different things that have been made. Oh, I was more interested in how they started the company, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of information about it. Oh my god, they made Croc Legend of the Gobbos? No, they made a Japanese version of it. Oh my god, I have to go here for nostalgia. Oh, the memories. Yes, Croc Legend of the Gobbos is a platform game developed by Argonaut. That's who it was. Who did they become? 
Oh, they just ceased to exist. Oh, that's sad. Published by Fox Interactive. The game was an early example of a 3D platform game, being released in North America in 1997 for the PlayStation, and later that year for the Sega Saturn and Microsoft Windows. I did not have a PlayStation. I had my dad's computer, though. That's what I had. And on it, I definitely played Croc Legend of the Gobbos, and I picked it up on CD-ROM from Fry's Electronics and it was amazing. You had to jump on these platforms and you had to collect the gobbos and you just did these like different maps. It was basically Super Mario but with a crocodile. Okay, I was definitely too young at the time to understand the backstory so I'm going to read this. King Rufus, the leader of a furry race of creatures called the gobbos, is watching the sunrise over Gobbo Valley when he sees a large woven basket carrying a baby crocodile floating down the river. Wait. Was Croc Legend of the Gobbos based on the Moses story? Kind of. Initially suspicious of the young crocodile, but ultimately won over by its innocence, King Rufus and the Gobbos decide to raise it as one of their own and teach it in the ways of the Gobbo. The crocodile named Croc grows bigger over time, eventually becoming much larger than the Gobbos. So then they kick his ass out. No, I, I don't actually know what happens. Oh, villains known as the Dantinis invade the valley. They capture the gobos, lock them in steel cages. Yes, and you have to unlock the cages, that's right. And King Rufus comes to save Croc by summoning a magical yellow bird named Beanie, who transports Croc to safety right before Rufus is snatched away by Baron Dante, that's right. Oh my God, I'm having a nostalgia fest, I apologize. Please tell me there are screenshots. No, there aren't. I'm gonna have to take a break and Google image some. Okay, Croc. Legend of the Gobbos. Oh baby, I miss this game. Oh yeah, and the jellies. You would jump on the jellies and you would go, you would jump a lot higher. It was very exciting times for for a child. Very exciting. Yes, there are the Gobbos. Graphics, big time graphics. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm way overexcited. Look how cute they are though. This was the best game. Oh my god, you can download and play it? No, stop. No way you can download and play it. Oh, I may need to do that. Let me know if you're interested in old ass games. Maybe I'll play a couple because any excuse to play old games brings me joy. All right, well that's um that was that was one for me for sure. I appreciate this Wikipedia. Thank you for bringing me to Croc Legend of the Gobbos. What else is there? Does it recommend any other old games? What other Argonaut games were there? No, I didn't play any of these. Pete Sampras Tennis 97. Please tell me there are graphics. Oh, it doesn't look like there are images. Oh my god, this is such a time capsule. 1990s Portal. That's what I'm about. Hell yeah. Got all these lists. I was a child. 1990s toys, please. Oh boy. Moon shoes. This is ridiculous. Betty Spaghetti, that rings a bell. Oh yeah, she had like changeable limbs. Weird. Oh yeah, there was definitely a war between Tamagotchis and Gigapets. I actually wonder what the memes would be around people who had Gigapets versus people who had Tamagotchis. My first one wasn't even a Tamagotchi or a Gigapet, it was something else that my mom got from a mall. Honestly, it was great though, I freaking loved it. And then, 
for some reason when I was in high school, Tamagotchi had a resurgence, and yes, there were a bunch of us, like, 16-year-olds with Tamagotchis. Tamagotchi it is. I've been drawn in. Handheld digital pet that was created in Japan by Akihiro Yokoi of Wiz and Akimaita of Bandai. Released in 1996 and 1997 in the rest of the world, quickly becoming one of the biggest toy fads of the late 1990s and early 2000s. As of 2010, over 76 million Tamagotchis had been sold worldwide. That's actually less than I expected. Oh, it's a portmanteau of egg and watch. Interesting. So it won the creator, Akimaita, the 1997 Ig Nobel Prize for Economics. Um, I have a video I made on the 2020 Ig Nobels that you should probably check out. Shameless plug. I wonder what they said about it. Is there a list of Ig Nobels by year? There might be. That's where we're going. Please tell me there's a list. Is there winners by year? Yes, list of Ig Nobel Prize winners. If you don't know what the Ig Nobels are, well, I'll read it. Parody of the Nobel Prizes, the Ig Nobel Prizes are awarded each year in mid-September, around the time the recipients of the genuine Nobel Prizes are announced, for 10 achievements that first make people laugh and then make them think. Prizes are intended to celebrate the unusual, honor the imaginative, and spur people's interest in science, medicine, and technology. All prizes are awarded for real achievements, except for three in 1991 and one in 1994 due to an erroneous press release. Oh no, that's terrible. Okay, 1997. It was in economics. She got it for economics. Presented to Akihiro Yokoi of Wiz Company in Chiba, Japan, and Akimaita of Bandai Company in Tokyo for diverting millions of man hours of work into the husbandry of virtual pets. That's so snarky, I love it. What else won in 1997? Communications, presented to Sanford Wallace, president of Cyber Promotions Philadelphia. Nothing has stopped this self-appointed courier from delivering electronic junk mail to all the world. I may need to click on that man, but first, I also need to point out that in medicine, some folks discovered that listening to Muzak stimulates immunity system production and thus may help prevent the common cold. There's also a man who wrote a book, That Gunk on Your Car, which identifies the in insect splats that appear on car windows. That's very useful. Okay, well, let's check out Sanford Wallace, who is apparent king of junk mail. Okay, Sanford Wallace is an internet spammer. He initially started sending junk faxes, oh, those must have been the days, before coming to notoriety in 1997, promoting himself as the original spam king. Wallace's prolific spamming has resulted in encounters with the US government, anti-spam activists, and large corporations such as Facebook and MySpace. So in the late 1990s, his company Cyber Promotions, or Cyber Promo, got blacklisted because they sent so much unsolicited email. He had a high-profile pro-spam stance. Did you know anybody in this world was pro-spam? Well, apparently there was. It was this guy and politicians. His high-profile pro-spam stance and unrepentant persistence earned him the derisive nickname Spamford. <laughs> Easy but accurate. I can't hate on it. Prior to his email spam ventures, Wallace, no, we're gonna call him Spamford. Wallace hereby known as Spamford. Spamford had gained notoriety in other questionable marketing circles as a heavy utilizer of junk fax marketing, practice outlawed in the US since 1991. So it was in 1995 that he entered the spam market. He had a self-marketing campaign which made his company rapidly rise to be the most successful seller of email marketing and the number one source of unsolicited email. In 1996, he was sued by an ISP 
and entered it into a consent decree to not use their network again. Because it failed to become a legitimate business, Spamford returned to junk faxing in late 1997. <laughs> Why make spam your thing? I just, I don't, I don't know. 1998, he publicly announced he was quitting the spam business. Oh no, who will take his place? Politicians. Cyber promo was converted to what he claimed was an opt-in. Email marketing company he renamed GTMI. Got too much information? Is that what that stands for? The revised company was plagued by major, fi major financial problems, as well as the spectre of its former self. And then the company died. He had his internet connection disconnected for spamming in 1999. Wow. Nowadays, that's like cutting off somebody's utilities. It appears he did not leave the internet marketing business entirely. He was linked to PassThisOn.com in 2001, which utilized multiple window launching to snag web viewers. Ugh. That is a cancer. He was also involved in another so-called opt-in project, SmartBotPro.net, which is now apparently also defunct. So where is he now? Oh my god, he even infected computers with spyware and offered to remove the problem for $30. The FTC filed suit against him. He was ordered to pay over 5 million in fines. Then MySpace sued him for phishing and spamming because he'd used automated software to create 11,000 fake profiles in order to direct MySpace users to other websites. So in 2007, a US judge issued an order prohibiting him from creating or maintaining MySpace profiles. My god, he got like totally blacklisted from the internet. In 2008, he and his partner were ordered to pay 230 million to MySpace because they, fa they failed to appear for trial. <laughs> then Facebook also sued him for posting spam on members' walls. He declared, oh yeah, he filed for bankruptcy. Yeah, of course he did in 2009. And a federal judge awarded Facebook 711 million in damages. Wow. So Facebook believed it wouldn't collect anything because he was bankrupt, of course. So the judge also recommended criminal contempt charges against Wallace, which carried the possibility of incarceration. He was then indicted in 2011 by a federal grand jury on various counts of email fraud, intentional damage to a protected computer, and criminal contempt. It was a two-year investigation by the FBI. He denied the charges and was released on $100,000 bail. And in 2015, he pleaded guilty. He was sentenced to 30 months in prison in 2016 in order to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in restitution for bombarding Facebook users. He's also sentenced to mental health treatment and five years of probation once he's released. And he was released in May 2018. He only served 21 months of the 30. So where's he now? We need to know. I'm sorry, I know we usually stick to Wikipedia, but I need to know where he is now. Are we going to know? What does he look like? Oh, he looks like a neckbeard. He's a mouth-breathing neckbeard. Well, I don't know what I expected from, um, from a prolific spammer. Wow, that was fascinating. Oh my god, I, I overlooked this. He was a DJ at some point. Performing under the name DJ Masterweb. Oh my god, that's so basic. Well, I- did you know about this guy? I didn't. Okay, see also, Oleg Nikolenko. Russian national who created the Megadi botnet. His activities may have been responsible for as much as one-third of the world's electronic spam. And Leo Kuvayev, a Russian-American spammer believed to be the ringleader of one of the world's biggest spam gangs. Seems like there's a few of these guys. I suppose it was a time where, much like any new technology, people were pushing the limits to see what they could do on it and get away with. But you think he had a lot of signs about when it was time to stop, but he didn't get it. Okay, I wonder if there are any good junk fact stories. 
Proponents of this advertising medium often use the terms broadcast facts or facts advertising to avoid the negative connotation of the term junk facts. Sounds like they've got a problem with reality. Junk faxes are generally considered to be a nuisance since they waste toner, ink, and paper. Yes. Though why we don't apply this to the physical junk mail we get in actual mailboxes too, I don't understand. Anyway, junk faxing came into widespread use in the late 1980s as a result of the development and proliferation of relatively inexpensive fax machines. Fax machines of this period typically used expensive thermal paper. So it's particularly problematic because it cost a lot of money. Shifting the cost of printing the adv advertisement to the recipient, that's true. That would be terrible. However, in the late 1990s, it once again became a widespread problem with the entry of a number of large-scale fax broadcasters. No, fax spammers. Fax spammers, let's not use their preferred language, thank you. Boasted of the capacity to send millions of fax advertisements per day. No, tragically, no interesting stories. War dialing determines what phone numbers reach fax machines. War dialing? A technique to automatically scan a list of phone numbers, usually dialing every number in a local area code to search for modems, computers, bulletin board systems, and fax machines. Oh, war dialing, that's very dramatic. There's literally software for it. Free open source, of course it is. Popular name for this technique originated in the 1983 film War Games. In the film, the protagonist programmed his computer to dial every telephone number in Sunnyvale, California to find other computer systems. And now it's illegal. War flying? What's that? Or war storming? Is an activity consisting of using an airplane and a Wi-Fi equipped computer, such as a laptop or PDA, to detect Wi-Fi networks. What? I mean, if I don't get it. If you're on a plane and you have a computer that accesses Wi-Fi, then you would just check for networks. This must be an old school thing, I don't understand it. Due to the nature of flying, it is much more difficult to attempt to access open networks while war flying. Oh, so you're just flying around, like actually flying around and <laughs> looking for networks? That seems expensive, why wouldn't you just drive around? You're not gonna find one out in the mountains, so I imagine you would be flying over towns. Yeah, I'm not sure I get this one. War Xing or driving. Oh, it's the act of searching for Wi-Fi wireless networks, usually from a moving vehicle. War biking, war cycling, war walking, and similar use the same approach, but with other modes of transportation. <gasps> I didn't know, I couldn't figure that out. Weird, I didn't know that it was, it was a thing, but apparently it's a thing. Let's check out Cyril Hori. He's a New York-based entrepreneur who has founded two geolocation technology companies, InfoSplit and Maxence, where he has designed IP address geolocation, Wi-Fi and cellular positioning technologies, and has testified as an expert witness on location-based technology in Liker vs Yahoo. Okay, for some reason I thought Cyril was going to be more interesting, but Cyril isn't. There's a category called living people. What the heck is that? Just has a list of everybody who's alive. Just living people. No, we need to click on it because I don't understand what that is. This category is for articles structured as biographical entries for living individuals. Because living persons may suffer personal harm from inappropriate information, we should watch their articles carefully. This category exists to help Wikipedia editors improve the quality of biographies of living persons by ensuring that the articles maintain a neutral point of view, maintain factual accuracy, and are properly sourced. 
<laughs> individuals of advanced age, over 90, for whom there has been no new documentation in the last decade, may be removed from this category and transferred to category possibly living people. <laughs> possibly. We're not sure. They were here. There's also just dead people. <laughs> Straight up just dead people. Okay, so this is like a somewhat internal thing for Wikipedia, but there's a list of living people on the English wiki who are dead on other wikis. Yeah, do tell me more about that. Oh, looks like they've... they've cleared it. How disappointing. Who was the living person in 2019 who was dead on other wikis? Ara Baliozian, an Armenian author, translator, and critic. He was born in Athens, Greece. He received his education in Venice, Italy where he also studied economics and political science. He lives in Canada, where he devoted his full time to writing. He's the winner of many prizes and government grants for his literary work, which includes fiction, drama, literary criticism, and translations from Armenian, French, and Italian. In later years, he posted his works on different Armenian internet discussion boards. So he's shown as dead somewhere else. Well, there you go. I think we'll end this here on Ara Baliozian, who is possibly alive. We're not sure. He seems to be dead somewhere on the internet, but to people who speak English, he's very much alive. We may have ended this quick hole on a possibly dead Armenian writer, but we started it with hentai. Yes, it was a long time ago at the beginning of this quick hole, and that sent us down a nostalgia portal because it took us eventually to croc Legend of the Gobbos, which I apologize for the amount of time I spent on that and possibly high-pitched noises that were made, but here we are. And from there we ventured into the 1990s portal that we returned to Ig Nobel, and discovered Sanford Wallace, a prolific spammer who, well, really left his mark on society. And then discovering some really weird categories that happened to be on Wikipedia through the back door. Feel free to make a recommendation for next time. Don't forget to click like, comment, share, and subscribe. Stay cozy and festive, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye!